Chapter Eight of In the High Valley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ellie. In the High Valley by Susan Coolidge. Chapter Eight. Unconditional Surrender. Have you seen Imogen Young today? Was Clover's first question on getting home. No. Lionel was in for a moment at noon and said she was preserving raspberries so as i had a good deal to do i did not go up why oh nothing in particular i only wanted to know well here we are left to ourselves with not a rose to our name how we shall miss them there's a letter from johnny for you by way of consolation but the letter did not prove in the least consoling for it was to break to them a piece of disappointing news the daytons have given up their western trip wrote johnny mrs dayton's father is very ill at elberon she has gone to him and there is almost no chance of their getting away at all this summer it really is a dreadful disappointment for we had set our hearts on our visit and papa had made all his arrangement to be absent for six weeks which you know is a thing not easily done or undone then debbie and richard had been promised a holiday and dory was going in the yacht with some friends to the thousand islands it all seemed so nicely settled and here comes this blow to unsettle it well tu disposé there is nothing for it but resignation and unpacking our hopes and ideas and putting them back up again in their usual shelves and corners we must make what we can of the situation and of course it isn't anything so very hard to have to pass the summer in burnet with papa still i was that wild with disappointment at first that i actually went to the length of suggesting that we should go all the same and pay our own travelling expenses you can judge from this how desperate my state of mind must have been papa as you may naturally suppose promptly vetoed the proposal as impossible and no doubt he was right i am growing gradually resigned to fate now but all the same i cannot yet think of the blessed valley and of all of you and and the happy time we are not going to have without feeling quite like weeping a little weep how i wish we possessed a superfluous income now said elsie and her voice too sounded as if a little weep were not far off isn't that too bad no papa this year and no johnny i suppose we are spoiled but the fact is i have grown to count on the daytons and their cries confidentially as though they were the early and the latter rain her arch little face looked quite long and disconsolate so have i said clover it doesn't bear talking about it does it she had been conscious of late of a great longing after her father she had counted confidentially on his visit and the sense of disappointment was bitter she put away her bonnet and folded her gloves with a very sober face a sort of disenchantment seemed to have fallen on the valley since the coming of this bad news and the departure of rose this will never do she told herself at last after standing some moments at the window looking across at the peak through a blur of tears i must brace up and comfort elsie but elsie was not to be comforted all at once and the wheels of that evening drove rather heavily next morning as soon as her usual tasks were dispatched clover ordered marigold settled and started for the youngs rose's last remarks had made her uneasy about imogen and she remembered with compunction how little she had seen of her for a fortnight past no one but sholto lionel's great deerhound came out to meet her as she dismounted at the door his bark of welcome brought ailey from the back of the house missy not very well me think he observed is missy ill where is mr young then he go two hours ago to Uppy valley missy not sick then is she in her room asked clover tie marigold in the shade please and i will go in and see her all light 
The bedroom door was closed, and Clover tapped twice before she heard a languid, Come in. Imogen was lying on the bed in her morning dress, with flushed cheeks and tumbled hair. She looked at Clover with a sort of perplexed surprise. My poor child, what is the matter? Have you a bad headache? Yes, I think so, rather bad. I kept up till Lion had had his breakfast, and then everything seemed to go round, and I had to come and lie down. So stupid of me, impatiently. But I thought perhaps it would pass off after a little. And has it? asked Clover, pulling off her gloves and taking Imogen's hand. It was chilly rather than hot, but the pulse seemed weak and quick. Clover began to feel anxious, but did her best to hide it under a cheerful demeanor, lest she should startle Imogen. Were you quite well yesterday? she asked. Yes, that is, I wasn't ill. I had no headache then, but I think I haven't been quite right for some time back, and I tried to do some raspberries and felt very tired. I dare say it's only getting acclimated. I am really very strong. Nothing ever was the matter with me at home. Now, said Clover brightly, I'll tell you what you are going to do, and that is to put on your wrapper, make yourself comfortable, and take a long sleep. I have come to spend the day, and I will give Lion his luncheon, and see to everything if only you will lie still. A good rest would make you feel better, I am sure. Perhaps so, said Imogen doubtfully. She was too miserable to object, and with a docility foreign to her character, submitted to be undressed, to have her hair brushed and knotted up, and a bandage of cold water and eau de cologne laid on her forehead. This passive compliance was so unlike her that Clover felt her anxieties increase. Matters must be serious, she reflected, when Imogen Young agrees meekly to any proposal from anybody. She settled her comfortably, shook up the pillows, darkened the window, threw a light shawl over her, and sat beside the bed, fanning gently till Imogen fell into a troubled sleep. Then she stole softly away, and busied herself in washing the breakfast things, and putting the rooms to rights. The young mistress of the house had evidently felt unequal to her usual tasks, and everything was left standing just as it was. Clover was recalled by a cry from the bedroom, and hurried back to find Imogen sitting up, looking confused and startled. "'What is it? Is anything the matter?' she demanded. Then, before Clover could reply, she came to herself and understood. "'Oh, it's you,' she said. "'What a comfort! I thought you were gone away.' "'No, indeed. I have no idea of going away. I was just in the other room, straightening things out a little. It was settled that I was to stay to lunch and keep Lionel company, you remember?' "'Ah, yes, it's very good of you, but I am afraid there isn't much for luncheon,' sinking back on her pillows again. "'Ailey will know. I don't seem able to think clearly of anything.' She sighed and presently was asleep again, or seemed to be so, and Clover went back to her work. So it went all day, broken slumbers, confused wakenings, increasing fever, and occasional moments of bewilderment. Clover was sure that it was a serious illness.' and sent Lionel down with a note to say that either Geoff or Clarence must go in at once and bring out Dr. Hope, that she herself was a fixture at the other house for the night at least, and would like a number of things sent up, of which she enclosed a list. This note threw the family into wild dismay. Life in the high valley was only meant for well people, as Elsie at once admitted. Illness at once made the disadvantages of so lonely and inaccessible a place apparent with the doctor sixteen miles distant and no medicines and other appliances of a sick room to be had short of St. Helens. Dr. Hope reached them late in the evening. He pronounced that Imogen had an attack of mountain fever, a milder sort of typhoid not uncommon in the higher elevations of Colorado. He hoped it would be a light case, gave full directions and promised to send out medicines and to come again in three days. 
Then he departed, and Clover, as she watched him ride down the trail, felt as a shipwrecked mariner might, left alone on a desert island, astray and helpless, and quite at a loss as to what first to do. There were too many things to be done, however, to allow her long indulging this feeling, and presently her wits cleared, and she was able to confront the task before her with accustomed sense and steadiness. Imogen could not be left alone, that was evident, and it was equally evident that she herself was the person who must stay with her. Elsie could not be spared from her baby, and Geoffrey, beside being more especially interested in the youngs, would be far more amenable and less refractory than Clarence at the curtailment of his domestic privileges. So pluckily and reasonably she buckled to the work so plainly set for her, established herself and her belongings in the spare chamber, gathered the reins of the household and the sick room into her hands, and began upon what she knew might prove to be a long, hard bout of patience and vigilance, resolved to do her best each day as it came, and let the next day take care of itself, minding nothing, no fatigue or homesickness or difficulty, if only Imogen could be properly cared for and get well. After the first day or two matters fell into regular grooves. The attack proved a light one, as the doctor had hoped. Imogen was never actually in danger, but there was a good deal of weakness and depression, occasional wandering of mind and always the low underlying fever, not easily detected save by the clinical thermometer. In her semi-delirious moments she would ramble about Bidford and the people there, or hold Clover's hand tight calling her Isabel, and imploring her not to like Miss Joff better than she liked her. It was the first glimpse that Clover had ever caught of this unhappy tinge of jealousy in Imogen's mind. It grieved her, but it also explained some things that had been perplexing, and she grew very pitiful and tender over the poor girl, away from home among strangers, and so ill and desolate. The most curious thing about it all was the extraordinary preference which the patient showed for Clover, above all her other nurses. If Euphane came to sit beside her, or Elsie, or even Lionel, while Clover took a rest, Imogen was manifestly uneasy and unhappy. She never said that she missed Clover, but lay watching the door with a strained expectant look, which melted into relief as soon as Clover appeared. Then she would feebly move her fingers to lay hold of Clover's hands, and holding it fast would fall asleep, satisfied and content. It seemed as if the sense of comfort which Clover's appearance that first morning had given continued, when she was not quite herself and influenced her. "'It's queer how much better she likes you than any of the rest of us,' said Lionel one day. Clover felt oddly pleased at this remark. It was a new experience to be preferred by Imogen Young, and she could not be but gratified. Though very likely, she told herself, she will stiffen up again when she gets well, so I must be prepared for it, and not mind when it happens.' Meanwhile, Imogen could not have been better cared for anywhere than she was in the High Valley. Clover had a natural aptitude for nursing. She knew by instinct what a sick person would like and dislike, what would refresh and what vary, what must be remembered and what avoided. Her inventive faculties also came into full play under the pressure of the little daily emergencies, when exactly the thing wanted was sure not to be at hand. It was quite wonderful how she devised substitutes for all sorts of deficiencies. Elsie, amazed at her cleverness, declared herself sure that if Dr. Hope were to say that the rock's egg was needful for Imogen's recovery, Clover would reply as a matter of course, Certainly, I will send it up directly, and thereupon proceed to concoct one out of materials already in the house, which would answer as well as the original article, and do Imogen just as much good. She cooked the nicest little sick-room messes, giving them variety by cunningly devised flavors, and she originated cooling drinks out of sago and arrowwood, and tamarinds, and fruit juices and ice, which Imogen would take when she refused everything else. 
Her lightness of touch and bright agreeable calmness were unfailing. Dr. Hope said she would make the fortune of any ordinary hospital, and that she was so evidently cut out for a nurse that it seemed a clear subversion of the plans of Providence that she should have married. A speed for which the doctor got little thanks from anybody, for Clover declared that she hated hospitals and sick folks, and never wanted to nurse anybody but the people she loved best, and then only when she couldn't help herself. While Geoffrey treated the fastidious physician to the blackest of frowns, and privately confided to Elsie that the doctor, good fellow that he was, deserved the kicking, and that he shouldn't mind being the one to administer it. By the end of a fortnight the fever was conquered, and then began the slow process of building up exhausted strength, and fanning the dim spark of life once again into a generous flame. This is apt to be the most trying part of an illness to those who nurse. The excitement of anxiety and danger being past, the space between convalence and complete recovery seems very wide, and hard to bridge over. Clover found it so. Imogen's strength came back slowly. All her old vigor and decision seemed lost. She was listless and despondent, and needed to be coaxed and encouraged and cheered as much as does an ailing child. She did not stiffen, however, as Clover had feared she might do. On the contrary, her dependence upon her favorite nurse seemed to increase, and on the days when she was most languid and hopeless, she clung most to her. There was a wistful look in her eyes as they followed Clover in her comings and goings, and a new tender tone in her voice when she spoke to her. But she said little, and after she was able to sit up just lay back in a chair and gazed at the mountains in a dreamy fashion for hours together. This will never do, declared Lionel. We must hearten her up somehow, which she proceeded to do, after the blundering fashion of the ordinary man, by a series of thrilling anecdotes about cattle and the vagaries, refractory cows who turned upon their herders and horned them, and wild steers who chased mounted men, overtook and gored them, how Felipe was stampeded and Pepe just escaped with his life. The result of this heartening process was that Imogen, in her weak state, conceived a horror of range-work, and passed the hours of his absence in a subdued agony of apprehension concerning him. He was very surprised and contrite and scolded by Clover. "'What shall I talk to her about then?' he demanded ruefully. "'I can't bear to see her sit dull and silent. "'Poor Moggy, and Kettle are the only subjects of conversation we have up here. "'Talk about yourself and herself and the funny things that happened when you were little. "'Pet her all you can, and pray don't allude to haunt animals of any kind. "'She is so quiet only because she is weak. "'Presently we shall see her brighten.' "'And so they did. "'With the first breath of autumn, full of cool sparkle and exhilaration,' Imogen began to rally. Color stole back to her lips, weaker to her movements. Each day she could do a little and a little more. Her first coming out to dinner was treated as a grand event. She was placed in a cushioned chair and served like a queen. Lionel was in raptures at seeing her in her old place at the head of the table, better than you, as he asserted, and certainly Imogen had never in her life been so pretty. They had cut her long hair during the illness because it was falling out so fast. The short rings around her face were very becoming. The sunburn of the summer had worn off, and her complexion was delicately fair. Clover had dressed her in a loose jacket of pale pink flannel, which Elsie had fitted and made for her. It was trimmed with soft frills of lace and knots of ribbon, and Geoff had brought up a half-opened tea-rose which exactly matched it. "'I shall carry you home with me when I go,' she told Imogen as she helped her undress. "'You must come down and make us a long visit.' I can't and won't have you left alone up here, to keep the house and sit for long hours every day, imagining that Lionel is being guarded by wild bulls. When you go? repeated Imogen in a dismayed tone. But yes, of course you must go. What was I thinking of? Not while you need me, said Clover soothingly. 
but you are nearly well now, and will soon be able to do everything for yourself. I'm absolutely silly, said Imogen, with her eyes full of tears. What extraordinary things fevers are! I declare I am as bad as any child. It is absurd, but the mere idea of having to give you up makes me quite cold and miserable. But you won't have to give me up. We are going to be neighbors still, and see each other every day. And you won't be ill again, you know. You are acclimated now, Dr. Hope says. Yes, I hope so. I am sure I hope so. And yet, do you know, I almost think I would go through the fever all over again for the sake of having you take care of me. Why, my dear child, what a thing to say. It is the greatest compliment I have ever had in my life, but yet... It's no compliment at all. I should never think of paying you compliments. I couldn't. That is sad for me. Compliments are a nice thing, I think. Imogen suddenly knelt down and put her arms on Clover's lap as she sat by the window. I want to tell you something, she said in a broken voice. I was so unjust when I came over, so rude and unkind in my thoughts. You will hardly believe it, but I didn't like you. I can believe it without any particular difficulty. Everybody can't like me, you know. Everybody ought to. You are simply the best, dearest, truest person I ever knew. Oh, I can't half say what you are, but I know. You have heaped coals of fire on my head. Perhaps that's the reason my hair has fallen off so, with a merciless laugh. I used to feel them burn and burn, on those nights when I lay all scorching up with fever, and you sat beside me, so cool and sweet and patient. And there is more still. I was jealous because I fancied that Isabel liked you better than she did me. Did you ever suspect that? Never till you were ill. Some little things that you muttered when you were not quite yourself put the idea into my head. I can't think why I was so idiotic about it. Of course she liked you best. Who wouldn't? How horrid it was in me to feel so. I used to try hard not to, but it was of no use. I kept on all the same. But you're not jealous now, I hope? No, indeed, shaking her head. The feeling seems all burnt out of me. If I am jealous ever again, it will be just the other way, for fear you will care for her and not at all for me. I do believe you are making a declaration of attachment, cried Clover, amazed beyond expression at this outburst, but inexpressibly pleased. The stiff, reserved Imogen seemed transformed. Her face glowed with emotion. Her words came in a torrent. She was altogether different from her usual self. Attachment? If I were not attached to you, I should be the most ungrateful wretch going. Here you have stayed away from home all these weeks and worked like a servant, making me all those lovely lemon squashes and things, and letting your own affairs go to wreck and ruin. And you never seemed to remember that you had any affairs, or that there was such a thing as getting tired. Never seemed to remember anything except to take care of me, you are an angel. There is nobody like you. I don't believe anyone else in the world would have done what you did for a stranger who had no claim upon you. That is absurd, said Clover, frightened at the probable effect of all this excitement on her patient, and trying to treat the matter lightly. You exaggerate things dreadfully. We all have a claim on each other, especially here in the valley, where there are so few of us. If I had been ill, you would have turned to and helped to nurse me as I did you, I am sure. I shouldn't have known how. You would have learned how, just as I did. Emergencies are wonderful teachers. Now, dear Imogen, you must get to bed. If you excite yourself like this, you will have a bad night and be put back. Oh, I'll sleep. I promise you that I will sleep, if only you will let me say just one more thing. I won't go on any more about the things you have done, though it's all true, and I don't exaggerate in the least, for all that you say I do. But never mind that. Only please tell me that you forgive me. I can't rest till you say that. For what? For not liking me at first, for being jealous of Isabel? 
both were natural enough, I think. Isabel was your dearest friend, and I was a newcomer, an interloper. I never meant to come between you, I am sure, but I dare say that I seem to do so, and I can understand it all easily. There is no question of forgiving us, dear, only forgetting. We are friends now, and we both love Isabel, and I will love you if you will let me, and you shall love me. How good you are, cried Imogen, as Clover bent over for a good night kiss. She put her arms around Clover's neck and held her tight for a moment. Yes, indeed, she sighed. I don't deserve it after all my bad behavior, but I shall be only too glad if I may be your friend. I don't believe any other girl in the world has two so good as you and Isabel. Don't lie awake to think over our perfections, said Clover, as she withdrew with the candle. Go to sleep and remember that you are coming down to the hut with me for a visit, whenever I go. Dr. Hope, however, negative this suggestion decidedly. He was an autocrat with his sick people, and no one dared dispute his decisions. What your young woman needs is to get away from the valley for a while into lower air, and what you need is to have her go and forget that you have been nursing her, he told Clover. There is a look of tension about both of you, which is not the correct thing. She will improve much faster at St. Helens than here, and besides, I want her under my eye for a while. Mary shall send up an invitation tomorrow, and mind you, that you make her accept it. So the next day came the most cordial of notes from Mrs. Hope, asking Imogen to spend a fortnight with her. Dr. Hope wishes to consider you his patient a little longer, she wrote, and says the lower level will do you good, and I want you as much as he does for other reasons. St. Helens is rather empty just now, and is betwixt and between season, and a visitor will be a real godsend to me. I am so afraid that you will be disobliging and say no, that I have made the doctor put it in the form of a prescription, and please tell Clover that we count upon her to see that you begin to take the remedy without delay. And sure enough, on the doctor's prescription paper, with the regular appeal to Jupiter, which heads all prescriptions, a formula was enclosed, setting forth with due professional precision that Miss Imogen Young was to be put in a carriole, well shaken all the way down, and taken in fourteen daily doses in the town of St. Helens, immediate. How very good of them, said Imogen. Everybody is so wonderfully good to me. I think America must be the kindest country in the world. She made no difficulty about accepting the invitation, and resigned herself to the will of her friends, with a docility that was astonishing to everybody except Clover, who was in the secret of her new-born resolves. They packed her things at once, and Lionel drove her down to St. Helens the day after the reception of Mrs. Hope's note. Imogen parted from the sisters with a warm embrace, but she clung longest to Clover. "'You will let me come for a night or two when I return, before I settle again at home, won't you?' she said. I shall be half starved to see you, and a mile is a goodish bit to get over when you are not strong. Why, of course, said Clover, delighted. We shall count on it, and Lion has promised to stay with us all the time you are away. I do think the girl has experienced a change of heart, remarked Elsie, as they turned to go indoors. She seems really fond of you, and almost fond of me. It is no wonder, I am sure, so far as you are concerned, after all you have done for her. I never supposed she could look so pretty or come so near being agreeable as she does now. Evidently mountain fever is what the English emigrant of the higher classes needs to tore him out and attune him to American ways. It's a pity they can't all be inoculated with it on landing. Now, Clovy, my dear sweet old Clovy, what fun it is to have you at home again, she went on, giving her sister a rapturous embrace. I wouldn't mention it so long as you had to be away, but I missed you horribly. There's no luck about the house, and you are not in it. We have all been out of sorts. Joff quite down in the mouth, little Joff not at all contented with me as a mother, 
Even your fane has worn a long face and exhibited a tendency to revert to the Isle of Man, which she never showed so long as you were to the fore. As for me, I have felt like a person with one lung, or half a head, all broken up and unlike myself. Oh, dear, how good it is to get you back, and be able to consult you and look at you. Come upstairs at once, and unpack your things, and we will play that you have never been away, and that the last month is nothing but a disagreeable dream from which we have waked up. It is delightful to get back, admitted Clover. Still, the month has had its nice side, too. Imogen is so sweet and grateful and demonstrative that it would astonish you. She is like a different girl. I really think she has grown to love me. I should say that nothing was more probable. But don't let's talk of Imogen now. I want you all to myself. The day had an ending as happy as unexpected. This was the letter that Lionel Young brought back that evening from Johnny at Burnet. Dearest sisters, what do you think has happened? Something as enchanting as it is surprising. I wrote to you about Doris having the grippe, but I would not tell you what a serious affair it was, because you were all so anxious and occupied about Miss Young that I did not like to add to your worries more than I could help. He was pretty ill for nearly a week, and though on the mend now he is much weakened and run down, and Papa, I can see, considers him still in a poor way. There is no chance of his being able to go back to the works for a couple of months yet, and we were casting about as to the best way of giving him a change of air. When last night came a note from Mr. Dayton to say that he is to take a business run to Salt Lake with a couple of his directors, and there are two places in Car 47 at our service, if any of us still care to make the trip to Colorado, late as it is. We had to answer at once, and we took only ten minutes to make up our minds. Dora and I are to start for Chicago tomorrow, and will be with you on Thursday if all goes well, and for a good long visit, as the company have given Dora a two months' vacation. We shall come back like common folks at our own charges, which is an unusual extravagance for the Carr family. But Papa says sickness is a valid reason for spending money, while mere pleasure isn't. He thinks the journey will be the very thing for Dory. It has all come so suddenly that I am quite bewildered in my mind. I don't at all like going away and leaving Papa alone, but he is quite decided about it, and there is just a bare chance that Katie may run out for a week or two. So I am going to put my scruples in my pocket and take the good the gods provide, prepared to be very happy. How perfectly charming it will be to see you all. Somehow I never pined for you and the valley so much as I have of late. It really was an awful blow when the August plan came to nothing, but fate is making amends. Thursday, only think of it. You will just have time to put towels in our room and fill the pictures before we are there. I speak for the west corner of one in the guest cabins, which I had last year. Our dear love to you all. Your affectionate Johnny. P.S. Please tell Mr. Young how happy we are that his sister is recovering. This is too delicious, said Elsie, when she had finished reading this letter. Dory, who never has been here, and John, and for October, when we so rarely have anybody. I think it is the sort of reward of merit for you, Clover, for taking such good care of Imogen Young. It's a most delightful one, if it is. I half wish now that we hadn't asked Lion to stay while his sister is gone. He's a dear good fellow, but it would be nicer to have the others quite to ourselves. Don't you think so? Clover, dear, said Elsie, looking very wise and significant. Did it never occur to you that there might be a little something like a sentiment or tenderness between Johnny and Lionel? Are you sure that she would be so thoroughly pleased if we sent him off and kept her to ourselves? Certainly not. I never thought of such a thing. You never do think of such things. I am much sharper about them than you are. 
and I have observed a tendency on the part of Miss John to send messages to that young man in her letters, and always in postscripts. Mark the postscripts. There is something very suspicious in postscripts, and he invariably blushes immensely when I deliver them. You are a good deal too sharp, responded Clover, laughing. You see through millstones that don't exist. It would be very nice if it were so, but it isn't. I don't believe a word about your postscripts and blushes. You have imagined it all. Some people are born stupid in these directions, retorted Elsie. I'll bet you Philida's back hair against the first tooth that Joffy loses that I am right. End of chapter 8 Recording by Ellie October 2009